Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if you were here last week, um, you might remember that uh, Jeff uh, Ziegler from Trinity Hinsdale was here. And this week, we're going to close down kind of the mini pastor swap that we've done this summer. Um, I was at Trinity Hinsdale last week preaching on this psalm that we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 3. And I love that we uh, do that every summer. I think it's been about five or six years now. I like being reminded uh, that we're not alone in our life, in our worship, in our work together. And um, hopefully seeing someone different up here last week, someone strange, uh, but in a good way, um, was at least a small reminder for all of you that we're not alone in this work that we do together. So you all looked at Psalm 4 last week, which is sometimes called an evening psalm. And this morning we're going to look at its companion. Uh, we're going to look at Psalm 3, which often gets referred to as a morning psalm because of what the psalm writer says in verse 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. And I think that's a pretty good way to think about this psalm. It is a prayer, even a uh, desperate prayer to pray in the morning. So let me read from Psalm 3 for us. You can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed. You can follow along in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Psalm 3. A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, as always, we ask that you would use this word that we have just read and heard together, this word that was written a really long time ago in situations that are very different from the ones that we find ourselves in, that you would use this word, that you would enliven it by the power of your spirit and draw us to the word that is incarnate. Show us our elder brother Jesus. Show us your goodness to us in him, your mercy to us, your grace to us in him, and change us by it. Meet all of us in the places where we find ourselves this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, someone <clears throat> who is close to me, um, for sake of anonymity, we'll call her Allison B. Um, she has what I think is a really interesting uh, tick in her sleep rhythms. Um, as of Thursday this last week, I've been married to Allison B. for about 21 years, so I've had a lot of opportunity to see this particular tick, and this is what it is. Sometimes, at certain points in the night, if she wakes up, she wakes up looking absolutely terrified. Terrified. 
I noticed this uh, early on in our marriage. Um, there are certain times of the night if I wake her up with my voice or by touching her or by making a sound in the room when I'm getting ready to hop into bed, she opens her eyes as wide as saucers and she looks at me in abject terror. And this, this stare of terror is often accompanied by these whispers of fear like, what's happening? What's going on? And I have to say that when this first, uh, when I first uh, m- married Allison B, uh, this really troubled me. First of all, because I felt like a jerk every single time that it happened. Secondly, because I thought, what is going on <laughs> in her head and in her heart that's getting pushed so close to the surface when I wake her up? But as far as we can tell, it's just a thing. It's always just been a thing with her. Every single time it happens, I'll say, nothing, babe, it's just me. And within a second, she's asleep again. She doesn't even remember that it happened in the morning. So now, this is just kind of funny and entertaining to me. Um, (laughs) But it would be something else altogether if she woke up in the mornings like that. If she woke up terrified. Because waking up afraid is not what anyone wants happening in the morning. And that is the emotional space, that is the psychological space that this psalm occupies. It's that space after we wake up, after we have been blissfully unaware of everything that's been happening in our life for a few hours. And then we wake up and two seconds later, everything rushes in. We remember who we are, we remember where we are. And our minds fill up with whatever trouble we're facing. They fill up with whatever struggle we find ourselves to be in the midst of. I'm guessing that some of us here this morning may have felt that when we woke up this morning. And there are probably others of us here who have been feeling that every morning for a long time. We feel like we've been stuck in it. We're occupying that space for a really long time, almost every morning. And then my guess is that every one of us here at some time or another um, have felt that morning rush of fear and anxiety just at some point in our lives. And that's one of the reasons that we have the Psalms. We have the Psalms to mirror our emotions, to mirror our situations in life, and to give us a map for how to deal with those things as people of faith. And so Psalm 3 is a psalm for people like you and me. So imagine that this is your first thought when you wake up in the morning, all right? After the haze of sleep clears away and after it wears off and everything begins to rush in and you remember who you are and you remember where you are, imagine this is your first thought in the morning. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. That's how Psalm 3 begins. That is a pretty harrowing way to start the day. And as we read together, this psalm is identified. It wasn't printed there in the order of worship, but it's at the heading of the psalm in your Bibles. There's this historical indicator that says this is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, not all of the psalms have these historical indicators, but when they're there, they're worth paying attention to. So here is the world that that title evokes. David is in the wilderness, and he's fleeing for his life. He's not fleeing from a foreign king. He is not running from a foreign army. 
He is fleeing from his own flesh and blood. He is running from his son, Absalom. Now, Absalom, for his part, had mounted a four-year conspiracy to turn the hearts of the people of Israel away from his father, and it's been successful. And now it has culminated in this coup attempt, which is also appearing to be very successful, that leads to David fleeing for his life from Jerusalem with a few loyalists. He barely escapes with his life. He stops on the Mount of Olives just briefly to weep openly about the situation, to mourn with those who are with him. And then he leaves there and he makes his way out in the wilderness to hide. That's where David is. His betrayer child has stolen his throne and he is on the run. It's not too difficult to imagine the pain, the sadness, the fear, the confusion that David is feeling. You can read about all of this in 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel, this is what the historian says about this moment, this world that this psalm evokes. He says the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So it's no wonder that David wakes up in the morning and he prays, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. But the threat is not just a military threat. David knew that all of this was happening in part because of his deep failures as a king and his deep failures as a father. We know David's track record, especially the, the dark side of it. He had committed adultery. The plot, the adultery and the plot to cover up that adultery led to the death of many innocent, loyal men. And after that episode, the prophet Nathan told David that the sword was never going to depart from his house. Nathan said, David, there will always be violence in your house. And so David knows that Absalom was the way that he was in part because David was the man he was. And so there he is out in the wilderness fleeing from a violence that was partly his fault. And 2 Samuel says that as David was fleeing, one of the royal descendants came out. His name was Shimei. He came out to curse David. He saw David running, and he, this is what he does. He comes out to David, and he says, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. The Lord has avenged on you all of the blood of the house of Saul. And David heard that cursing, and he knew that there was something to it. So he wakes up and he prays in the morning. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. This is what David hears when he hears those curses. God won't save you, David. God can't save you. Those curses were directed at the deepest part of who David was. And all of David's skill, all of his cunning, all of his smarts, all of his talent, all of his leadership ability. And believe me, church, those things were there in abundance. <laughs> those things were formidable in David's life. But all of that stuff that he usually relied on had failed him. And his life was completely unraveling. 
and he was falling apart. So it's worth asking just for a minute, what would you and I do in that same situation? I don't know what rushes into your head a couple of seconds after you wake up. I have my own list of changes throughout the year. I know none of us have ever been regents on the run from our betrayer children. I mean, if you have, it's pretty amazing, and this is your psalm. <laughs> but just because that's not who we are doesn't mean we don't have our own list of things that rush into our head. Right? When our health or the health of someone that we love is failing or suspect, when our job prospects look bad, or when there's someone at our job that, for whatever reason, that we can't sort out is against us and wants us to fail. When someone that we love turns on us. Or when we look around at our life and we wonder why we're still alone. Or when we fear for the future of our kids or we fear for the future of our aging parents. Or when we just can't seem to make the pieces of our life come together, no matter how smart and thoughtful and talented we are, what do we do then? Well, here's what the psalm writer does. He takes his gaze off of those troubles for a moment. He turns away from all of that stuff for a moment, and he retreats into memory. He retreats into memory, and he doesn't do this as an escape. He doesn't do this to distract himself. Memory is an essential discipline in the life of faith. It brings freedom. It lets us breathe. It weakens fear, and it weakens anxiety in our lives. Memory is essential to our faith. It, it brings freedom to us, and it helps us breathe and it weakens fear, and it weakens anxiety in our lives. I mean, this is exactly what the psalm writer does in verses 3 through 5. He begins to remember. He retreats into memory. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. So we'll talk about one of those specific things that he remembers in just a minute. But for now, just that is what he is doing. He is remembering. He's remembering when God has shown him gracious relief in the past. He is remembering when God has done amazing things for him. And church, this is what I want us to hear, that memory makes up a large part of the prayers that we see in the Psalms. It makes up a large part of our gathered life together. I mean, do you ever wonder why our worship looks the way that it does? Why we do the same things every week, week in and week out? Do you ever wonder why we often use the very same words and pray the very same prayers when we do those same things over and over again? Why are we always talking about and singing about and praying about God's love for us in Jesus? Why are we doing that? Well, it isn't... It isn't because Paul and I can't think of other things to fill up the time with. <laughs> I'm sure we could figure out all kinds of interesting things to stuff into 75 minutes. But one of the reasons we do these things every Sunday 
is simply so that you and I will remember. We are constantly rehearsing what God has done for us when we worship. We're human. It means we forget all kinds of stuff all of the time. So we worship in part to remember what God has done for us. Memory is critical to our growth and to our maturity as God's people, and we need each other to do it. Because when people like us remember what is true about God, when we remember what is true about what God has done for us, when we remember what is true about who we are and who we are as God's children, when we remember those things, it brings us freedom. And it allows us to breathe. And it weakens our fear. And it weakens our anxiety. I, I know this is a difficult discipline. I know it is hard to practice. In particular, if your moment of trouble is attached to depression. But it is an essential discipline in our lives. It's something that God has given to us for our good. And this is precisely what it leads the psalm writer to. This freedom, this ability to breathe, this weakening of fear. This is exactly where the psalm writer goes. He says, I'm not going to be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves up all around me. Now listen, that's, that's certainly not because David's life, the circumstances in his life have changed. Nothing in his life has changed. He is still on the run. He is still hiding out from his son. But what has changed is David's way of being inside of those circumstances. This is what memory has done. And this is what memory holds out for you and me too. So let me say something about one of those things that David remembered. I mean, to remember that God has been a shield around him his whole life. It's probably the most beautiful metaphor in the psalm. To remember that God has been the lifter of his head, even in the worst of circumstances, it is an obviously wonderful image. But what does it mean when the psalm writer says God is his glory? What does that mean and how is that even relevant in this moment? Well, in scripture, someone's glory is their essence. It is the weight of their being. I know in our culture, when we talk about things that are glorious or when we talk about glory, we, we lean towards things that are shiny and bright, you know, like halos and sunsets and those kind of things. But that's not how scripture treats this word glory. It's not what it means there. We kind of come closer to what that word means when we say that someone has gravitas or when we say that someone has dignity. What we mean when we say that is that they have a weight that is compelling and that is often beautiful. And here's the truth. Every human being, every one of us is made for glory. Every one of us, whether we have faith or don't have faith or we're not sure about faith, every single human being has been made for glory. We are all made to bear and to reflect a compelling and ultimate and beautiful weight. Psalm 8, Psalm 8 talks about this. First and Second Corinthians talk about this. Colossians talk about this. It's everywhere in Scripture. We are made for glory. And the problem, of course, is that we often chase that glory down in things that could never give it to us. We're hungry for the glory that we've been made for. And so we chase it down in things that approximate it, in things that stand in for it. 
Some of them are really good things, right? We chase down glory by being really, really good at our jobs, by being the best that we can be at our jobs. And we chase down glory by being fit or attractive or both of those things if we can get it. We, we chase down glory by being a good parent with kids that you're really proud of. And we chase down glory by being a good student with the grades and recommendations and commendations to prove it. We chase it down by being sought out for advice. We chase it down by being the one known for their spiritual maturity. We chase it by being the one who is known at being competent in life. Things like that, all on their own good things. I mean, in David, David has a boatload of that stuff in his life. (laughs) He is a king, for goodness sakes. (laughs) He is a king. He writes music. He plays music like nobody's business. He is this incredible military leader. He, forget being a military leader, he's just a great leader. He is a leader of people. People have all, in it, through his life, found him to be incredibly compelling. I mean, he killed Goliath. All great stuff. And none of it means one thing in this moment in his life. Because it is all gone. And when we try to find the kind of glory, when we try to find the weight that we have been made to bear and reflect and stuff like that, we're always going to end up frustrated and sad and often feeling ruined. Because all of that stuff, even the best of it, it comes and it goes. It can be taken from us. It's subject to the same vagaries and entropy and deconstruction that we are. None of it can bear the weight of glory. So, you know, if you're chasing glory in your looks, like the late David Foster Wallace put it, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. If you're chasing glory and being competent in what you do, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of us have felt this in here, <laughs> If you're chasing glory and being competent at what you do, then any dissent, even the smallest, feels like a knife in your back. It's like a betrayal. Church, if it's your kids you want serving up ultimate glory for you, then you might just have a breakdown when one of them swerves off the course you have for them. So David, David is just remembering the truth. out there hiding like an animal from his own son, cowering, cheeks riven with tears. He is remembering the truth. God is my glory. My own significance and my own weight are found in God and in being God's. He is not subject to the vagaries or entropy or deconstruction that I am subject to. His inclination towards me is always for my good and always for my flourishing. And church, this is the kind of truth that the Psalms always hold out for people like me and you. God is where we find the glory that we were made for. And when we find it there, everything else finds its good, right place in our lives. So David, now he has come to the point where he can finally pray the prayer. (laughs) 
where he can finally ask God for the thing that he has wanted to ask God for from the beginning. And so this is what he says. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Strike all of my enemies on the cheek, break the teeth of the wicked. And I know that those words can often be hard to hear. We're kind of supposed to shrink back at them because you know we're sophisticated people. Here's what David is saying. This is, this is exactly what David is saying. Put down this insurrection, God. This coup, I need you to squash it out. Pop my enemies in the face and let's see what they can say through a mouthful of broken teeth. And church, here's another reason the Psalms are really good for people like you and me. They give us a place to go when we think things like this. I mean, we could, on the one hand, be really aghast that David would think such violent things. (laughs) Or we could, on the other hand, be grateful that we have the Psalms and say, thank you, God, that I have a place to go when I think stuff that's every bit as violent as this and worse. Because here's what David's doing. He is giving his thoughts and he is giving his emotions and he is giving his anger to God in prayer for God to do with them whatever he sees fit. And in doing that, the psalm gives us a model for faithfulness. When we are afraid and when we are furious and when we're feeling violent and when we're at the end of our ropes, And so through memory and through trust and through prayer, David has reoriented himself to the true story of the world. He has reoriented himself to his own place in it. He has rested in God and his fear has weakened. And that's why he can end the psalm the way that he does. Remember, at the beginning of the psalm, this is the the taunt that he heard. There is no salvation for him in God. But now that he has remembered that it's not what this one guy says that constitutes reality, he can say the reality is that salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his. And he can do with it what he pleases. That is the reality. And this leads David to pray something extraordinary. This is how he ends your blessing be on your people. (laughs) Which is a very astounding thing to pray, given that those people are now bearing down on him to kill him. (laughs) It's an astounding thing to pray for someone who has just prayed about broken jaws and broken teeth. And in praying like this, David is a shadow of this greater son that would wipe out the violence of his house. He is a shadow of Jesus when the waters had come up to Jesus' neck, when his enemies had closed in on him, when they were literally in the process of executing him. Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. And this is how the prayers of the Psalms, and especially laments like this psalm, work in a graceful sweep from natural anxiety and natural fear to memory and trust and blessing and rest and renewal. They model a faithful life for you and me, even in the most difficult situations. So in gratitude, let's give ourselves over to praying them and singing them together 
and remembering that it is salvation belongs to God. Let me pray for us. Father, would you use this word, even when we're not thinking about it, by the power of your spirit to change us? Father, when we find ourselves in the circumstances that we are living in and we wake up in the morning and that fear and that anxiety and that trouble rushes in, would you help us to remember that you have been everything to us in Jesus? You have given us everything. You have loved us fully and completely and that your intention for us is our good and our flourishing. Father, help us to remember by your spirit. Help us to help each other remember and to keep on doing it. Father, we ask that you would do this for our good, certainly, but do this for the good of the broken world around us as well. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.